verses 5 and 6 and verse 11. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father, addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Praise God for his word. Thanks so much, Jerry. We love you. It's so good to see Betty here. This is a victory, and we claim it as a token of many victories to come. I have three points this morning. Number one, uh, the blessing is important. Number two, the blessing is very important. And number three, everyone should get baptized. So you can follow the logic there. We're looking at the life of Jacob. And uh, today we're going to go through a number of chapters quickly and then focus primarily on chapter 32. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. What a wonderful time of worship we've had today. And uh, we worship in all circumstances of life. We find ourselves in great difficulties at times, yet we defiantly continue to worship you because you are worthy and because you're up to something, something good. And uh, even at the time, we may not understand it and we may even resent it, but you are producing a harvest. You are producing something that extends way beyond what we can imagine or think. And it's because of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us on the cross, making all this possible. So thank you, Lord, for what you've already done and what you're about to do in this service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the life of Jacob is the chronicle of one man searching for the blessing. And the interesting thing is that 4,000 years later, we are also searching for the same thing. Because often we feel there's something missing. We talked about that in the second episode. A Harvard University study concluded that it is vitally important for all children to leave home feeling they've received their parents' blessing. Those who felt loved and valued by their parents, especially their fathers, did significantly better both in their professional lives and in their personal relationships. Now, we don't really emphasize this 
in any formal way in our culture. But in other cultures, variations of the blessing have been turned into ceremonies like the Jewish bar mitzvah, or the Vanuatu bungee jump, or the Amish rum springer, or the, in the U.S., young girls have their sweet 16 party. Maybe the closest equivalent in our culture would be uh, getting your driver's license. That's such a big deal. We are wired to be appreciated, to excel. And every time a child says, hey mom, watch this, they're auditioning for the blessing. Smalley and Trent write, missing out on parental approval can make us either angry, driven people or detached and empty. And even after our parents die, we can still be searching for the blessing, seeking approval from substitute authority figures like teachers or employers or coaches or religious leaders. This helps to explain some of the power that cult figures have over their followers. People like Jim Jones, David Koresh, Sun Moon, Colonel Sanders. <laughs> now for many of us, the search for the blessing is, is an unconscious motivation. We feel there's something missing, but we're not quite sure what it is. For Jacob, he was fully aware of the importance of the blessing because it dominated all the decisions he made. But for him as well, there was still something missing. But one thing was clear. His future was not in Haran, where he'd have to continue dealing with his treacherous father-in-law. In Genesis chapter 30, verse 25, it says, After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Well, that's interesting. Because this was really part of God's master plan. The promise that God gave to Abraham when he said, I will bless you, and through you the blessing will go to the world. Well, even a hard-nosed, crusty old idolater like Laban was benefiting from the blessing that was on Joseph's life. Sometimes God is good for business. Verse 28 says, he added, name your wages and I will pay them. Oh, watch out, Jacob. You fell for that scam before. 29, Jacob said to him, You know I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I've been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you? He asked. Laban believed every man has his price. Loyalty was a commodity to be auctioned off to the highest bidder. Well, Jacob actually agrees to one last deal with Laban. He says, I'll tend your flocks, and any speckled or spotted or black lambs will be my wages. The rest are yours. Well, that sounded good. But in doing so, Jacob returns to some of his cunning ways. 
using his understanding of breeding and animal husbandry, so that in the end, verse 42, the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. Well, eventually Laban and his sons were getting suspicious. So in chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I'll be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength. And yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. So they start their journey south, back to the land God gave Abraham. But Laban realizes he's been deceived, so he gathers a posse and pursues the fugitives. After finally tracking down his son-in-law, Laban accuses him of treachery. And Jacob accuses Laban of treachery. Mirror, mirror, they are almost identical. This could be another clone war. Well, it's obvious that this land wasn't big enough for both of them. So they set up a heap of stones and they promise they will not enter each other's territory because the world will be a better place if they never see each other again. And then Jacob and his tribe continue on their way. So up to this point, Jacob has overcome every obstacle in his path. He went head to head against his older brother who was endowed with superior natural ability, and yet he won. He came from the far side of his father's favoritism and somehow still ended up on top. He struggled with the treachery of his father-in-law but emerged victorious. Not bad for a born loser. Now he could retire undefeated. Except that these were just the preliminaries. It was now time for the main event of the evening, for Esau was coming his way. Chapter 32, verse 6, messengers returned to Jacob and said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. That's worse than getting a notice from Revenue Canada that they're going to audit your finances. Esau is coming toward you, and 400 men are with him. I mean, this is why Jacob left in the first place, to escape the vengeance of his hairy brother. 400 men? Why, why would he need 400 men? Well, it looks like the day of reckoning has arrived. Charlie Brown once said, no problem is so big you can't run away from it. Well, that may postpone the consequences, but it does not prevent the inevitable. Numbers 32.23 says, You may be sure that your sin will find you out. There is no statute of limitations. So here's a message. Esau is coming, and he has 400 men with him. Now what? Well, I mean, Jacob has matured in his spiritual life, and he knows there's nothing to fear. In fact, there were, the hosts of, there were hosts of angels nearby to protect him. All that he had to do was trust in God's promise. 
And yeah, he did that. But first he panicked. Verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the, one, the group that is left may escape. Old habits are still functioning. Now, we all know that you, know, you can be saved, but you can still continue scheming trying desperately to maintain control of your situation. If Esau attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. And so he sends them ahead of the, himself, which is you know, unbelievable. What a despicable coward. He's using his family as a shield, sacrificing them to save his own neck. But it was the only option he could think of. After all, his father had done the same thing. And so had his grandfather, Abraham. It was a family tradition, a sin passed down through the generations. Anyway, I hope that works. Now it's time to pray. Verse 9, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my fa father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children, those poor mothers and their children. God, you've got to help me. But you've said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be counted. That's an interesting prayer. It sounds pretty good. And if that prayer is true, then you shouldn't need to panic because your prayer indicates that God has a situation under control. He will not forsake you. Yes, I know that, but I still need a good plan, or even a bad one. Who cares? We want to cover our bases. God is supposed to help me, but if he doesn't, I need some kind of backup. Oh, it's so hard to let go. It's not easy to trust God when the radar indicates 400 hostiles incoming. It's so hard to give up control to surrender, to fully surrender. But Jacob is surrendering. He's surrendering to Esau. Jacob is offering Esau everything he has gained in the last 20 years. All of his assets, his flocks, his herds, his hired hands, his servants, his sons, his whole family. That's quite a bribe. It might just work. Verse 22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, <coughs> and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So put in a good word for me, and, and take Esau this bowl of lentil soup. It's his favorite. Good luck. Love you guys. Verse 24 says, So Jacob was left alone. 
Have you ever had a moment like that? When all the things that you value, when everything that validates your life, your entire support system is gone? Just imagine being all alone. No iPhone, no Wi-Fi, no Amazon Prime, no battery charger, no Facebook, no credit cards, no passport, no ID, no family, no friends. How, how could you survive? What would you have left? God? Would that be enough? So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, Jacob's situation is already almost hopeless. But now it just gets worse. Someone comes at him out of the darkness and attacks him. Who is this? Well, there's the usual suspects. We know that Jacob had made enemies wherever he went. Behind him was an offended father-in-law. Coming toward him was an offended brother. So who was this? Was this one of the sons of Laban? Could it be Esau? Conor McGregor, is that you? Who was his attacker? There had been no official introductions, no weighing-in ceremony. Jacob is ambushed by an unknown assailant who apparently is unarmed. He doesn't have a knife, doesn't have any weapons, no nunchucks. It's it's just hand-to-hand combat. So there's a headlock and a body slam. But don't be alarmed because Jacob will find a way to win this battle. He always does because Jacob never gives up. There is not an ounce of quit in him. And then there's an arm lock and a pile driver. Somehow they seem evenly matched. Neither one is able to get the upper hand. We know that Jacob is no wimp. Remember when he single-handedly removed that large stone that was covering the well? And they keep wrestling hour after hour. And this was really pay-per-view material, although that the view wasn't that good because you couldn't see anything in the darkness. And it's impossible to tell who might be ahead on points. Neither one is able to su- apply a submission hold. We're going to have to go to the scorecards. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Well, as dawn approached, Jacob must have been exhausted, but somehow also exhilarated by the struggle. Maybe Jacob sensed that his life really wasn't in danger, that this was not necessarily an enemy. But the suspense was building, the anticipation. Soon he would be able to see the face of his opponent. Verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. They had fought fiercely for hours, straining, struggling, agonizing, pushing themselves to the limit. And now one touch and Jacob was rendered totally helpless. His thigh muscle, the pivot control of his body, was immobilized. It's like pulling the plug on a power saw. Obviously, his opponent could have done this hours ago. Why did he wait? Who is this? 
Well, one thing is for sure. The match is over. And the winner is... No, wait a minute. No, no, it's not over. Jacob has not tapped out. He replied, I will not. The man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob wants to quit. But Jacob refuses to give up. His lower body kind of like the terminator, but he could still apply a vice-like grip. He's like, kind of like the terminator. No matter what damage you do, he just keeps coming. I will not let you go. And it's because Jacob has finally figured out what's going on here. Now he knows who he's dealing with. They have met before. This indeed was the main event of his life. All of the other struggles he's had have been preliminaries and warm-ups. This was the one battle Jacob couldn't possibly win. And also the only one he could not afford to lose. Because Jacob's adversary was his only hope. And so Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What? Are you serious? That doesn't make sense. That's a strange request from a defeated man. You're in no position to make any demands. Your only option is surrender. Why don't you just give up? Unless maybe that's exactly what he's doing. One of my favorite quotes is from a French mystic named Madame Guillon who said, in the commencement of the spiritual life, our hardest task is to bear with our neighbor. In its progress, with ourselves. And in the end, with God. In other words, in the life of faith, there are three stages. In the first stage, our biggest struggles are with other people. And then, after that, our biggest struggles are with ourselves. And finally, towards the end, our hardest battles will be with God. And you know that's true. Even Jesus, towards the end, pleaded in Gethsemane, is there any other way? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. His hardest battle came at the very end. He cried out on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jacob's most formidable opponent was God. God himself. That's who this was. This was the Son of God in one of his pre-incarnate appearances. He appears a number of times throughout the Old Testament, and this is one of those. And Jacob realized that as soon as he went limp. That's why this was a sign of complete surrender. For the first time in his life, Jacob humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob's whole life had been a search for this moment. He had wandered far and wide, auditioning many false hopes until he finally met the one who had the power to truly bless him. Jacob has let go of 
everything he had gained, his birthright, his possessions, even Rachel, but he could not let go of this man. I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. What is your name? Jacob's name was an embarrassment, deceiver, cheater. So the Lord gave him a new name, Israel, one who struggles with God. It's the second greatest name in human history. There's only one name greater than that. This is a name that has endured through the ages. 4,000 years later, we still speak of Jacob's new name, Israel, and we celebrate the blessing that we have received through his descendants. You will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. You see, Jacob was beaten, and yet he won. In his surrender, he had overcome. And it was the Lord who actually had to give up, who tapped out, let me go, I quit. Jacob held on and won. Jacob said, please, tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God. I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Those who struggle with God are often marked for life. Paul had his thorn in the flesh. Our Lord had scars on his hands and feet and a gash in his side. And this limp was a permanent reminder to the man who struggled with God. A reminder that he'd given up all the things he couldn't keep to gain the one thing he could never lose. To quote and paraphrase martyred missionary Jim Elliot, Israel, just think of that, Israel, it means it's okay to struggle with God, to wrestle with Him. Read the Psalms, Job, Jeremiah, Jonah. It's okay to struggle. Because often these struggles begin with anger. But if you hold on, they will never end that way. I once had a struggle with God that took me eight years to resolve. And it began with great anger. He was my enemy. But after eight years, I found myself struggling with my best friend. It's okay to struggle with God. In fact, God invites us to engage with him. This wasn't like fencing where you're standing at a safe distance. This wasn't like a duel at 50 paces. Wrestling is a contact sport. There is no other sport where you get closer to your opponent. Wrestling is a contact sport, and so is faith. 
So grab on and don't let go. The only tragedy in life is when you turn away and your heart goes cold. But it's okay to wrestle with God. And the interesting thing is that God, when we wrestle, meets us at our level. Whether we're middleweight or heavyweight or featherweight, He doesn't always overwhelm us the way he did with Isaiah. Sometimes we encounter him at eye level and we're evenly matched. And it's just like Jesus who humbled himself and made himself nothing, who lost for our sake. It's much like a father wrestling with his son. You go down to their level and let your boy beat you. That's one of the great pleasures in life. You don't wrestle with your son saying, I have to remain undefeated. I've got to just pin this guy down. In all the times I've wrestled with my sons and grandsons, I have not won once. Not once. But what does it matter? It's just so much fun. It is so meaningful. Those are some of our closest moments and best times. I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, in the end, whatever blessing we may have missed from our parents or other authority figures is more than made up for by our Heavenly Father. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, because it's not even about the blessing, it's about the blesser. It's getting closer to Him. And sometimes the closest we can possibly get is when we struggle and we wrestle. That's what we're really searching for. Pascal has said there is a God-shaped vacuum in every soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he has set eternity in the hearts of men. You see, when you're hungering and thirsting and when you're searching, it really helps to know what you're looking for. Jacob had finally found the thing he searched for all his life. He'd finally reached his destination. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. But wait a minute. There's a bit of unfinished business here. What about Esau? What about his army? Chapter 33, verse 1, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. And verse 4 says, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. So the man who embraced God now embraced his greatest rival. And so the sun rose. It was a new day. Jacob had a new name. And the rest is history. Father, thank you that you truly are a father. Every father loves to wrestle with his kids. Those are some of the best moments, the best memories we have. We're almost never closer than when we are wrestling. 
And as a heavenly father, you feel that way as well. So thank you, Lord, that you're willing to wrestle with us. Thank you that you come to our level. Thank you that uh, faith is a contact sport. And through it, we get closer to you. Sometimes especially in the trials and in the struggles we have. Lord, we, uh, we know that as we continue to face the life that we endure here on this earth, like Jacob, you will not leave us and forsake us. You will do all that you've promised because you will never let us go. You say to us, I will not let you go and I will bless you. What a great father you are. And as we think of that, we think of the struggle you had with us, how you sent your son to us and how we treated him and how we despised him and how we rejected him and how we nailed him to a cross. And he did that for us. And we know that through that struggle, all the distance that was between us has been removed. We are drawn close through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And we want to gather around this table now and celebrate that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.